Crisis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. Everybody, today on the podcast, I have Martin Gutmann. Uh, he is a university lecturer at Lucerne School of Business in Switzerland. He has a lot on his bio, and he's going to talk a little bit about that. He's a historian, and we are going to explore some fun nooks and crannies today. I can't wait to jump in. Uh, Martin, tell our listeners a little bit about you, and and then we'll get we'll jump in. Sure. Uh, thanks very much for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here. What's the saying on American radio? Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> <laughs> captures my role here today. But um, yeah, so as, as you said, uh, I'm a historian by training, but for a number of reasons, I've worked in management departments of one variety or another for close to a decade now. And so I still do a lot of traditional historical research and teaching, but the audience or the type of student that I have is very much the manager or the management student. Yeah. And uh, that's a particular place to be. It's also a fun, fun place to be, I would say. I was really excited because when we first, when we first connected a few moments ago, we, we, we found out that we have some roots in common in Minnesota, which is awesome. We, we grew up in, in areas close to one another. So it's always fun to speak with another Minnesotan or at least someone who's familiar with Minnesota. And a historian. So how did you come to being really interested in leadership as a historian? Would you take us through that path a little bit? There's two experiences that laid the foundation for my interest in leadership. Uh, the first one is when I wrote my dissertation, I was interested in foreign, so non-German nationals, experts and intellectuals in particular, who joined the Nazi SS, this terror organization that was involved in all the most brutal crimes of the regime. I was particularly interested in how they helped construct this ideology and how that manifested itself in the institutional culture. And as a historian, you're not trained to think in terms of influence or motivation organizational design or organizational dynamics, all these terms that you would use in management sciences. Yeah. Instead, you talk about agency, structure, causality. But below these different vocabularies, there's a similar core question, which is that how does an individual shape a social process? And how is that individual in turn shaped by the group? Hmm. So I didn't appreciate this at the time, but my dissertation work provided me with a good foundation to examine leadership later on in my career. Well, and, and so you did your you did your PhD at Syracuse, if I'm correct. Yeah, that's right. And and what did you find? That that's really an interesting. So these are individuals, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, who were not in Germany 
but they were energized, quote unquote, by the mission and they joined. Is that accurate? That's right. That's wow. right. And the, um, the post-war interpretation in their countries of origin was that they had been either criminals or mentally unstable and that that was the reason for their joining. But when you actually go and look at the sources, the records that they left behind and all the other material, uh, you see that they were actually well-connected in their pre-war societies in Denmark, in Sweden, in Switzerland, in Holland. Uh, and it was really a matter of conviction. And the other side to the story is that they became very active shapers of the SS uh, and its various crimes. So I think this tragic episode in the 20th century is a part of the German narrative, but it's also more complex. There are or were a lot of willing helpers from a lot of other corners of the world. Yeah. And it, I had a fun conversation with Barbara Kellerman, probably, oh gosh, it's a couple months now. And and in that podcast, we discussed, you know, these three, she calls it the leadership system, you know, the leader, the followers and the contexts. And, and I think as she said, sometimes the followers are just as bad or worse than the actual leader. They kind of know what they're signing up for at a certain point and they're energized by that. And that's obviously in certain situations, a good thing, but in other situations, just toxic and damaging and destructive. Absolutely. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's also important to realize that, you know, we think of leadership often as taking place in the domain of organizations we admire leadership being an essentially good thing. Yeah. But of course it has been used for um, terrible purposes as well yep. about influencing people, but the aim can be anything from good to bad to completely banal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so what were a couple themes from your dissertation? I'm probably making you think back here a little bit. <laughs> yeah, this was a long time ago. If you're like me, I don't know if I could answer that question right now, but are there, are there any themes that you took from it? And then, and then that kind of sparked this interest in, in ways in leadership, huh? Well, actually, you know, I did this work on, on the SS, on the Nazis, and put that aside. Had a lot of other experience, uh, was involved in some other research projects. Um, but the other foundational experience for me is actually more personal. So I try to seek out spaces and activities in which I am challenged both physically and mentally. Hmm. So I'm, I was a very keen amateur mountaineer, nothing newsworthy, but I spend a lot of my time off in Alaska or in the Alps doing these very long, challenging routes. Hmm. And these activities, I think they require a lot of care and planning and preparation. There's a lot of science. There's a lot of tinkering. But at the end of the day, there's the fight is in your head. Yeah. And in those moments, what can turn is this suffering and this, this um, overbearing desire to give up into an actual growth experience is the bond that you have with your partners and so here too, I developed a real appreciation for the power that we have to influence each other. 
Yeah. And especially again, if, if you, as, as I read, ultra alpine marathoner, correct? Yes. Okay. So I, I don't even know where to begin with how to define that, but I know there's mountains and running involved for an ultra doesn't sound very fun at times. Yeah. So but, ultra <laughs> just means longer. <laughs> ultra can mean a lot of different things. It just yeah. means longer than a marathon. Yeah. And, uh, but they're taking place on trails in the mountains and, you know, this is the sport I practice now because I have kids and uh, don't quite have the time to commit to mountaineering anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I used to run long distances as training for my climbing and mountaineering. And now I uh, do it as my primary activity, if you will. Uh, it's so it's, it's so admirable. Now, what is the, the longest ultra alpine marathon that you've, that you've run? Back in my 20s, I ran a couple, couple of pretty long trails, you know, 80 kilometers or so. Wow. Uh, now I'm a bit more measured and I was training for a 50 kilometer run this past summer. It got canceled due to yeah. the Corona crisis. So I'm looking forward to doing it next summer. Awesome. Awesome. Well, and so you've not only challenging yourself through the mountaineering, which I have great respect for, by the way, I love... I have not myself experienced it, but I love watching the Don Wall or Meru or Alex Honnold's free solo. I've had a couple climbers on the podcast. One had climbed K2, uh, Sarah Safari. Uh, she has climbed, you know, the tallest peak on six of the seven continents. And, and so I just have so much respect for that work, pushing oneself to their limits Adventure has been, it seems to be a theme in your personal life. If we look at some of the work that you just published, it seems to be a theme in that work. Uh, how did you get to the point of writing this book, Historians on Leadership and Strategy? And so as I said, I had these experiences that piqued my interest in leadership. Yeah. yeah. But then as I started interacting with students in management programs, I noticed that there was a bit of a gap that needed to be filled. Mm. It's rare for historians to write about leadership, but it's not rare for historical examples to be used in leadership studies, whether of an academic nature or a more popular variety. I actually just read this morning in a popular leadership book that there's 80,000 biographical leadership studies, most of them historical in mm. nature. There's books about Napoleon and, and Churchill, the yep. like. And this makes sense. Like humans are storytellers by nature. We crave stories. It's a way to make sense of the world, but also reflect on ourselves. And history has, has the power to inspire people. Yeah. But have you, Scott, have you ever watched ER with a friend who is a doctor or a heist movie with a friend who is a cop? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And there's a great clip back to mountaineering. There's a great clip of Alex Honnold watching famous mountain climbing scenes from, you know, whatever film, Cliffhanger with Sylvester Stallone. And, and there's a Tom Cruise, one of the, it might be Mission Impossible where he's climbing and, and Alex Honnold's yes. like, yeah, yes. no, that's not a thing. Or, yeah, this is pretty good. <laughs> I, 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 need to, I need to watch that in that it's case. It's good. I'll, yeah. I'll put a clip I mean, in the show notes. So, so you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. This is a bit of how I feel as a historian reading some of these historical case studies. Hmm. There is some effort to get the details right, 
But the overall feel is sometimes, the overall context is sometimes not as nuanced nuanced as a historian might like it to be. Yeah. Uh, so one example, you know, if you're on LinkedIn, which I know you are, yeah, um, you probably see this famous ad by Ernest Shackleton, the British explorer. Um, I, it pops up on my LinkedIn feed a couple times a year with yep. some quote about how great he was as a leader, men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, etc. Yeah. Great example of leadership. The only problem is he never wrote it. <laughs> It doesn't exist. You can go back to the times where it was supposedly published. It's not there. Yeah. And now, I mean, that detail is not essential, but there are some details in the historical context that I think are really important for the leadership lessons that we draw out of them. Yeah. So another example is the chapter in in, uh, my chapter on Roald Amundsen. Yeah. In this book, Historians on Leadership and Strategy, one of the pieces of information I stumbled upon was that he decided to use a small 13-horsepower petrol engine in his ship. Hmm. That's the kind of detail that you may just skip over because it seems insignificant. But in 1900, this is the age of steam. So this needs to be contextualized. Oh, wow. This is... A very risky decision because this is a highly combustible fuel that he's then bringing, but at the same time, it has a much higher um, energy density than coal, and it enables him to maneuver in a way that bringing a classical steam engine would not. So I think these details need to be put into the proper context before we can draw out any lessons from the cases. And so my goal with this book was simply, let's get a bunch of historians together. Yeah, None of them actually are active in the leadership scene, but they're absolute experts in the time periods and the characters that they're writing about. Wow. And let's have them write about a leadership challenge without trying to advance any particular leadership theory, just lay out the case and then allow the reader to read into that, take out of the cases what they want. I love it. I love it. And so you had mentioned Roald Amundsen. I'd never heard of him, a polar explorer. So tell us, tell us a little story about, about this gentleman. What were his adventures about? I can't think of another human activity in which one person's success stands so far above that of all the other contenders. Really? I mean, he is the absolute superstar. He's the outlier in terms of polar exploration. Okay. Yet when we look back today, in a lot of these leadership cases, we see Shackleton, we see Robert Falcon Scott, John Franklin, these British captains. And this disparity really fascinated me. Hmm. So to give you just a little bit of an insight into this guy, uh, the Northwest Passage is this sea route through the archipelago uh, of Northern Canada. Yeah. So from from the Atlantic Ocean over to the Pacific. And Europeans had long speculated that it existed, but no one had successfully found it and navigated it. And after the Napoleonic Wars, the British got very serious about finding it because this was a time of peace and the British Navy didn't have much to do. 
but they had a lot of capacity, a lot of captains, a lot of ships. Yeah. And so their senior civil servant, this guy, John Barrow, decided finding the Northwest Passage is a task for the British Navy. And he put everything they had into it. He sent some 20 expeditions, all superbly funded and equipped. Really? Uh, you know, the, the British, they were the, they were the masters of the sea. They had a tech, uh, technical know-how. They had a talent pipeline. They had dedicated suppliers. Wow. But in this endeavor, they failed, sometimes spectacularly. And then in 1903, you have this young Poor, completely unknown Norwegian, Roald Amundsen, yeah. sets out with a measly crew of six <laughs> in a converted fishing vessel that was old by this point, and he succeeds. Yeah. And so we need to know what is it that this guy did? Yeah. What did he do? What did he, he do? Well, so, so there's a there's a famous kind of Simon Sinek story where you, you have the gentleman who was well funded to create the airplane, and then you have Orville and Wilbur, you know, who are not, but they have yeah. the passion and and the energy and the enthusiasm. So, what did you find? What is it about him? There, there's a lot to find there, uh, really. And I should say too, you know, his success with the Northwest Passage wasn't a fluke. Hmm. There's four goals in this age of polar exploration, the two passages, the Northwest and the Northeast, and the two poles, the North Pole and the South Pole. Wow. Amundsen accomplished all, all four goals in his lifetime. Wow. Three of them he was the first to do. It's extraordinary. And so in terms of the Northwest Passage, um, I like to think about what John Cotter tells us and others about management and leadership. Sure. The former is, you know, dealing with complexity and the latter dealing with change. Hmm. And in this challenge of the Northwest Passage, uh, you really needed the utmost competency in both domains. Yeah. And Amundsen had that. When we think of expeditions, we think of the leader standing at the helm, you know, shouting directions and waving at his crew as the ship weaves in and out of the ice. We think of movement and danger and split-second decisions. In navigating the Northwest Passage, the real challenge was wintering. Uh, you know, this waterway froze solid. There were only about one to three months, if you were lucky, where you could move. Hmm. So you had to expect to spend nine to 11 months frozen in place. Wow. Wow. And, and that's the challenge. You know, in fact, one British Captain James Ross... He has spent two winters frozen in place, decided to cut his losses and go back. And when the ice finally released his ship, he could sail for two days before he was frozen in place again for another year. Oh my gosh. And you have to imagine these winters, complete isolation, near total darkness, and there's no real meaningful inputs. No. It's brutally cold. So that's the management challenge. You got to pack everything you need before you leave harbor, everything you need to survive and function <laughs> for years, but, for years. <laughs> but but it's also a leadership challenge, right? Because yes, yes. you got to you, you got to maintain the motivation of your men, not just to hang in there during these months, but when the ice finally relents, they have to be motivated enough to keep going into Go. the unknown. <laughs> Yeah, so this, you know, this requires vision and the ability to sell that. And 
in the Second World War, there's famous quote by an American general who said that the American army doesn't solve its problems, it overwhelms them. Mm. This is how the British Navy tried to solve this problem. These ships that they used, the Erebus and the Terror, two famous Arctic uh, exploration ships, were originally so-called bomb ships. They were huge, heavy, reinforced, um, so that they could take the recoil from these mortar shells that they fired. Yeah. John Franklin, one of the famous British explorers, had a crew of 128. They had experience in every conceivable profession, except one, Arctic hunting. (laughs) <laughs> and um, yeah, you can see you can see how that story ends. Right? Um, they had a library of thousands of books, hundred thousand pounds of canned meat, dynamite to blow the ice, an arsenal of weapons, and everything else. They took off in 1845 and were never heard from again. Wow! And on the leadership side, the British tended to go with good old rank and navy discipline. Yep. Yep. Tell me more about. Uh, rolled. So yes, six, six individuals, six individuals total, or was it a, a crew of six? It was a crew of six plus him. Okay. And he's an entrepreneur. Yeah. You know, this is not the Norwegian Navy that's sailing. Yeah. This is Amundsen using his inheritance and all the money he can borrow. He's heavily indebted when they sail. And six individuals whom he's essentially paying to come along on this journey, but handpicked by him. And when we look at what he does, he's, he's an authentic leader long mm. before this becomes uh, an in-concept. And he knew that he would be stuck with these men in this cramped space for years. So they were not just his subordinates and his employees. They were his friends. They were his family. And he made a point to avoid what he called irksome discipline. And he also picked individuals who had particular skill sets so that they could have a sense of autonomy and ownership over a particular um, domain of the expedition. So one of the guys he took with had no meaningful Arctic skills, but he was super jolly and he was a great cook. Oh, wow. And I almost figured this guy's going to keep us all happy <laughs> as we're sitting there. And, uh, you know, he, he wasn't afraid to make a fool of himself. Um, they had a lot of fun together. But at the same time, everybody felt intuitively that he was in command. And in terms of planning, it's also the same kind of entrepreneur prototyping his way forward, using a lot of old Inuit and Norwegian technologies where that seemed more appropriate, but also taking some newer things such as the engine, um, not stuck in any particular mindset. And so he sets off with his small crew in 1903. How old and is he at this time? Is he? He is. His... He was thirty-one years old. <laughs> so he's a he's a pretty young guy. Yes, and um, they have to sail. This may be apocryphal. Nobody knows for sure, but they uh, sail at midnight in the summer because he hears that some creditors are descending on the harbor to impound his ship. Yeah, that that might be. Uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it could be an, <laughs> exactly. It could be a bit of an embellishment, but um, but it adds to the story. So it, it adds to the stories. No, he, he was in fact uh, indebted. The creditors were after him. The question is just if his nighttime escape was yeah. necessary or yeah. or not. But <laughs> it makes it makes for a good story for sure. Yes. So they sail and manage their way around Greenland into the Canadian archipelago, and rather than just 
push on until the ice ensnares them, he deliberately seeks out a safe place to winter, foregoing a few extra days of potential sailing. Yeah. And they stay there for two years. He deliberately seeks out contact with the Inuit to learn from them about hunting, to also have some social contact. And a lot of what he learns in terms of building igloos, in terms of clothing and hunting, he's able to use on his later expeditions uh, and are a big part of his success there. Wow. So there's a greater okay. openness you know, than, than we see in the military domain of the British here. Oh, yeah. So he, so literally, he spent two years in that spot to learn. Yeah. After the first winter, they could have continued on. I think uh, that's a testament to how high the morale was that they, that he decides that we're going to stay another winter. He also had some scientific experiments to carry out uh, because he had promised this to some of his funders. And so they stay there uh, regarding the magnetic North Pole which was nearby, and he stays true to that commitment as well. And then in 1905, they sail out of this little natural harbor they had found. And um, in August, they run into a whaler from San Francisco, which means they had made it around to the other other side. They have to spend one one more winter uh, north of Alaska, but at that point, they're back in known waters, and uh, they did it. Wow. So why is why is he overshadowed? Why have I not heard of him? What is that? Three three of the four, he was the first, and he accomplished all four. No, that's that's a great question, and I can only speculate. You know why he's not more well known? Yeah, I I can think of three reasons. The first one is I think we tend to equate great leadership with a great challenge, with near death events, with harrowing conditions. Uh, and his expeditions, compared to the British ones, were drama-free. Hmm. They were, at times, downright boring. Yeah. So that's, that's the first one. Uh, the second one is, this is the time when the British Empire is at its zenith. Hmm. You know, the, the Royal Navy and the Royal Geographic Society, which also sponsored some of these expeditions, saw Arctic exploration as their game. And they did not look kindly on this Norwegian nobody moving into their territory. And there's a deliberate campaign to prop up the image, to inflate the image of these British explorers, Franklin, Scott, and Shackleton primarily, and to downplay the achievements of Amundsen. So we often hear the British referring to the remarkable luck that Amundsen had on all of his journeys. Yeah. And the final one is he was not a good self-promoter. Okay. He, he's the kind of leader who is best in the field. Yeah. At home, he was a very private person. He was kind of awkward. He, his English wasn't particularly good. Uh, and so when he went to speak in London and the US, he could do it, but it wasn't quite as captivating as some of these other Arctic heroes who were used to being in the spotlight were public yeah. figures. You even see this in his own accounts of the trips. He downplays a couple of hairy situations. If you then go and read the accounts of his crew, uh, they're much clearer about how certain events unfolded. So I real think real quick, these, real yeah. quick, how did his crew, Martin? How did they? How did they? Speak of him. What what could you find on that front? 
I mean, this must have been a three, this, this particular trip was three, four years. Yes. They started in 1903 and arrived in San Francisco in 1906. Okay. And then they didn't get home for another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it took, yeah. I'll see they, you later, they, honey. You know, exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah. No. So they're, they're gone. They're, they're in it for the long haul for sure. Yeah. They speak very positively of him. One of the crew men refers to the Northwest Passage trip as a pleasure cruise. Wow. At least the, the first part. Um, you know, of course, there were some tense moments. There was a lot of bickering, but it seems to be more on the authentic level, the kind of bickering and disagreements you would have between um, colleagues who are doing something together. But they also clearly refer to him as the leader. There's no doubt that they respected his judgment and at the end of the day, did what he asked them to do. Huh. What a fun story. What a fun story. You had mentioned a little bit ago that that leadership hasn't necessarily been a focal point for historians. And I find that kind of fascinating because, at least from my perspective, the Roald Edmondson story is, is a leadership story. That's just the lens through which I see what you just said. And so bring me into the context of, of historians where the leader may not be that focal point and why that is. This has changed a bit. Okay. You know, originally, history was the discipline that examined the quote-unquote great men. Mm-hmm. And it was usually men that they examined. Yep. And what they had accomplished. And in the last hundred years, the discipline has transitioned to focusing a lot more on broader structures. Economics, environmental factors... All of these drivers and contextual dimensions that channel or constrain the actions of individuals. Mm. Um, the president of the American Historical Association, Bernard Balin, in the 1980s, introduced this concept of latent and manifest history, by which he meant manifest history is the the events or the trends that contemporaries were aware of, okay, the things they discussed, things that were on their minds. But then there's latent history, all the trends and the drivers that they were not aware of or whose significance they did not understand. Uh, and I think most historians would say that these latent aspects are just as important in determining the outcome of any event as are any manifest aspects. And therefore, I think most historians would say that the ability of any one individual to shape events is constrained ah. at the best of times. And so that's a, that's a bit of the mentality that you look at the social dynamics, the social structures, rather than any individual. With that said, you have some great leadership books. I think one of the best books on leadership best in the sense of deeply analytical and insightful is Ian Kershaw's two-volume study on Hitler. Ah, okay. This, this is one of the key questions of the 20th century. How could this catastrophe, how could this crime happen? Yeah. And he does a very good job of placing the role of Hitler as an individual within a lot of other dynamics and trends. But of course, he 
uh, Kershaw doesn't frame this as a leadership book. No, no. But it is. Yeah, yeah. It's so much fun to think about. And so how do your students in business, in the College of Business or the School of Business, how do they respond to some of these cases that you're sharing with them? They tend to respond really well, especially if it's then also paralleled with some contemporary theory or perspectives. So it's really a nice compliment, I find. I often teach with uh, colleagues who are um, have a background in psychology and are you know the real experts on leadership, which I am not. The other thing I'd say about historical cases is often we can be more accurate in assessing the role of the leader versus contributing factors in wow. the successful or unsuccessful outcome. Yeah, because we we have not only do we have the perspective of time, so we're a bit in you know we have a more neutral mindset. But in many cases, there's also better sources available, and we've had time to look at those sources, and we can see the long-term implications of the decisions that were made. No, that's great. I, I had a conversation with Mike Roberto, and he he writes cases. And, and he said something, and I named the episode, I'm a Storyteller, because he said the beginning of the, in the process of the episode, he said, you know, I'm a storyteller. And whether that's a case on Trader Joe's or a case on the Columbia disaster, or he did a, a famous case on Everest, and there's a simulation you can do with your students through Harvard Business Publishing, which is a, a fun experience, Martin. If you if you haven't done that, try it. It's interesting. That, that sounds good. Since since I haven't, I, I probably won't get to climbing Everest at this point. So I'll do the <laughs> instead. I don't know that what you want to at this point with those traffic jams. The, the, the yeah, pictures that's a good I point. see. I'd never heard of that book about Hitler, a two-volume series. I'll put that in the show notes. Are there any other seminal pieces that you think people should explore? And what are you reading, streaming? What are you interested in right now? We just canceled our Netflix subscription. So wow. I'm not watching as much as I used to because <laughs> I just can't find the time. There's a couple of different things that I consume in terms of entertainment. Yeah. Because I have some American roots, but I'm not living in the States anymore. I tend to listen to a lot of NPR, uh, some of their specific podcasts. Mm -hmm. It's nice to feel connected also to Minnesota. Yep. I listen to NPR with the M, not, not the N. <laughs> and um, so that's, that's the one thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm reading a lot about the sustainable development goals right now. Good. There too, I'm involved in a project where I'm trying to link up or bring in the historical perspective for contemporary policy issue. Oh, I love um, it. Yeah. So maybe if, you know, for the, for the goal that's around sustainable energy or, or water, what's the historical kind of perspective on, on that particular SDG? Yes, yeah, so I'm involved in editing a volume which seeks to sketch the history of each SDG wow. before it became an SDG. Oh, wow. We call it the backstory. Okay. I love it. And it's, you know, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly yeah. in all of these backstories. But uh, we've been aware of these problems that are encompassed in the 17 SDGs for a long time, we as humans, and we've tried a lot of different things to get a handle on them. 
And it's important, I think, to dig up and present that historical context to the people who are working hard on the SDGs on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, Such an important I should probably mention, I mean, I haven't really mentioned anything I listen to or read. I love reading Scandinavian crime drama. Ah. Scandinavian Scandinavian thrillers. Okay. In particular, Norwegian ones. This has nothing to do with Roald Amundsen. Yeah. But um, they've got some great authors. Maybe it's the the dark and cold up there that inspires <laughs> some of these uh, absurdly... Well, they are, they are, they didn't black metal come from, from Norway as well in Sweden? <laughs> that, that seems very possible. It, it is cold and dark. Yeah. Well, a no, former so it, guest of mine, David Day... When I asked him what he was streaming, and you you will be familiar with this, and then I mentioned to it a guest, Eric Guthy, but it was uh, the bridge, uh, the story about. Yes. Uh, so so I, I'm I'm becoming familiar with this space for sure. Yeah, actually, the bridge. This brings us back to your first question um, about me. You know, I have these roots in Minnesota, but I grew up in Sweden. My mother's Swedish, and I grew up right on the coast where. The bridge from the series The Bridge now stands. Oh wow! There just wasn't a bridge when I was growing up. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are a couple titles that listeners could could explore? These uh, Norwegian thrillers that have stood out for you. I love uh, the books by Yu Nespo. Okay, uh, you'll you'll have to put some of these. He he has a series of books about the detective Harry Hula. Okay. And they are fantastic. The the other thing that I listen to quite regularly is the uh, How to Train Your Dragon series. Really? Because my kids, I have three yep. kids, they absolutely love them. And the audiobook narrator has the most outrageous Scottish accent. He's super funny. <laughs> and so we we listen to this all the time. The whole family loves it. And of course, that is a bit of a leadership story as well. Oh, yeah. You know, this this reluctant hero who has to grow into this role of saving humanity and inspiring his followers. So yeah, it's um, definitely highly recommended, even for people who don't have kids. Well, and I didn't realize, I mean, I've seen the animated films. I believe it's more than one film. And then there's, of course, the TV series. So that's been on. I've listened to that in the background as I was working or pounding away on writing something, but I didn't realize there were audiobooks as well. There are, and I highly recommend them. Okay. They're awesome. spectacular. Martin, I can't wait till you and I can, can have a cup of coffee at the foot of a mountain and I can learn some more. You know, the International Leadership Association next year is supposed to be being held in Switzerland. I will make sure to be there. Yes. So your neck of the woods. Absolutely. And, I and, hope uh, you can be there. I hope I, I'm, you can I'm hoping I can point. be. Boy, boy, I, I hope so, because that's uh, high on my list as a place to visit. So excellent. Uh, thank you so much for the conversation today. We, we have a lot to uh, digest and consume. I will, put, I will put links to your book in, in the show notes. And I just can't thank you enough, sir. Thank you for the good work that you're doing. And thank you for for exploring leadership in this way. I couldn't agree with you more that there's a very, very direct, really cool uh, connection to uh, your work and leadership studies. I think it's a lot of fun. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on. 
I could listen to Martin tell that story for hours. So many connections, so many connections. Just like my conversation with Emilio Iodice. If you've not listened to that episode, please do. So much that we can learn from the past. Now, what's interesting is that Martin's chapter in this book that you can find in the show notes, and that book title is Historians on Leadership and Strategy. His chapter is called Roald Amundsen in the Age of Polar Exploration, Entrepreneurship and Innovation in the Quest to Conquer the Northwest Passage. Entrepreneurship and Innovation. I love that. I love it. Because as he said, in that time, he was being extremely innovative in how he approached that task. Martin, you are welcome anytime. Keep bringing the stories and we will explore and we will learn because there's so much rich, rich content to mine by looking back. Hope you enjoyed the episode, everybody. If you would, pick up your copy of Historians on Leadership and Strategy when you have a chance. Be well. Take care. Have a great day. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.